You're listening to Grassroots, www.innovationstudios.com. It's week 37 of your Q&As. I am Marcus and I am back on this fairly sunny day. The weather's somewhere in between. Another little weather report there to start the day. But once again, I've been listening to your questions and I want to fill a few people in on what I've been doing. The phone's been ringing again. Some shows are coming in um, and uh, that's always good for me. And last Saturday, I had the distinct pleasure of going to Garen Park to go and see McFly, who, um, when they first sort of appeared on the scene 20, nearly 20 years ago, I was a bit, oh God, another manufactured boy band. But uh, in fairness, having seen them live um, and uh, the fact that they've been around for 17, 18, 19 years or something means that they must know what they're doing and they were absolutely great. Uh, my daughter had a great time and um, Cheryl had a wonderful time and I did too and they, they were great. If you ever get a chance to see them, forget the stigma that surrounds going to see certain uh, teeny bop bands. Give yourself a chance because those boys rock. Um, uh, even if I say so myself, uh, they were they really were uh, great and they were supported by Scouting for Girls. Had a great time with uh, watching them. Stereo MCs, if you, for those of you who are old enough to remember the Stereo MCs, um, and uh, several other bands, uh, Eliza and the Bear was another one. So look for these bands because they were, you know, I mean, obviously they're, they're already famous, but a couple of the, the lesser known ones are always worth uh, looking for. But that's not what this is about. See, McFly know who they are. They know what they can do and we buy their records. But this is the podcast that aims at the unsigned musician. And the one who's out there putting the set together and putting everything together and re-ringing their bandmates and getting everybody back together for a rehearsal. Now we can rehearse and getting ready to perform again. For those of you who have started performing again, I hope it's going well. Um, one of the things I did learn from seeing McFly is that everybody seems to be getting straight back in the swing of it. There weren't a lot of masks. There wasn't a lot of social distancing and people seem to be pretty much just doing what they want. So we'll keep an eye on that over the next few weeks. But um, for today, let's get on with the questions straight away. And the first question comes from Alistair. And Alistair is in Bexley. And he says, Hey, Marcus, do you use different plectrums for live work and for recording? Um, yes, sometimes. Um, particularly on, not necessarily on electric guitar, but, but um, certainly on acoustic guitar. Um, I think it's important. Sometimes you want that rasping sound that you get from a light pick. Now, um, I think it's Dunlop. They do those flimsy white ones, which are pointless. You know, I mean, be, be fair, you can't play a guitar with one of those. It's not a knock on them because a lot of people do successfully use them, but you can't get that rasping sound. Or if you do get the rasp, you don't get any beef to it. So sometimes it's nice to use a fairly light pick. Um, just having a look through my drawer here, grab a handful of them and have a little look. Um, sometimes it's nice to have a nice light one. Um, 0.71 is what I normally use. If you can get a 0.25 or a 0.5 mil, um, they're probably quite nice. Maybe a 0.25 or a 0.3, I think it is. And they give you that rasping acoustic sound, but still give you enough acoustic sound. Some of them just give you the rasp and no, um, power. Some of them give you too much power and not enough uh, rasp. That's my phone going off. Um, and um, sometimes it just doesn't happen for you. Sometimes it's just nice to have um, a, a raspy plectrum. Sometimes, see, see, the acoustic guitar, sometimes you don't want the acoustic to be that loud in the mix. So although I've just had a go at some of those Jim Dunlop 
um, plectrums. Sometimes if you just want a percussive acoustic that you don't want too loud in the mix, um, probably like maybe some, some of the things that Oasis do where maybe things like uh, right here, right now, um, uh, do you know what I mean, I should say, um, sort of has an acoustic on the intro that you can't really hear. You just know it's there. So sometimes if, you, if you're using the acoustic purely as a percussive instrument, it's really good to have um, a nice, um, just busy, um, raspy sort of sound without all the beef, which uh, sometimes is, is really handy to have. Um, but um, no, not really. Live, I, I like to use uh, point, point fives or point seven, little sort of medium. And sometimes in the studio for acoustics, slightly lighter. But it's also how you hold it as well. Sometimes you can hold a plectrum. See, when you play guitar for a long time, you can play um, with a really, really light plectrum and you can play with a really, really heavy plectrum and make it sound the same because it's how you uh, play it. It's how you strum it. It's how you hold the pick. It's a little bit like um, giving my darts to a professional and they still would throw in the same way, but they would they would just... They wouldn't throw with the same um, pace and the same muscle memory as they do with their own darts. So if I were to go from maybe a 21-gram dart to a 31-gram dart, everything else would still be the same, but it may be just how I release it or how I hold it that would make the difference. And a plectrum is like that. I always say, and it's only my opinion, which is what this podcast is about, Doug, um, it's really about um, when you play guitar for that many years, you're able to... Um, get the same result you can I, I can play with a heavy plectrum and make it sound like a light one um, because I can just hold it lighter that's all so in my opinion I think um, if you can learn how to strum an acoustic and get a nice raspy sound with a heavier plectrum then that's where the feeling comes from rather than using different plectrums um, I was trying to sort of liken it to golf in as much as that um, sometimes, you know, you, you use a, a two or a three iron and sometimes you use a seven iron and it's how it's how you swing that makes the difference. But I, I don't know. But the theory is the same. that Nothing changes in terms of the strum, but it's how you hold it or how it, how it sits in your hand that makes the difference to the end result. That's uh, pretty much all I've got to say about uh, about that one. But thank you very much for your question. Hazel, uh, doesn't say where you're from, Hazel. Hello, Marcus and Grassroots. Is it possible to extend your vocal range or are we just who we are? <laughs> Hello, Hazel. Yes, it is. It is possible to extend your vocal range in the same way that it's possible for an old bloke like me in his 40s um, with a bit of a spare tire around the old midriff to suddenly, if I wanted to, go running, lose the weight and run a marathon. But it would be a slow process and a hard process and it would involve pushing yourself beyond what you're capable of doing. Um, so, yes, you can, because you have to remember that the vocal range is basically based on a group of muscles that you use at the same time. And if they're strengthened and if they're used in the right way, then they settle down. The first few times you might do it, you know, let's let's use running as an, as an analogy. If I suddenly got off the sofa and decided I was going to run 22 miles, the ambulance would probably pick me up at about mile six um, if I got that far. But if I went and ran two miles 
and then the next day ran two and then the third day tried to run two and a bit two and a half by about day seven or day eight I know how the first two miles feel so I know how it feels to run two miles and then when I run a third mile and then on day four or day five or day eight or whatever when you move up from three miles to three and a half you know how the first three miles feel and singing is like that in as much as I always liken it to um, you kind of you, you, you hit the highest note that you can hit and then what I try to do is to try and go for the next semitone up. And then I call it knocking on the loft hatch. So you're kind of knocking on the ceiling. And what eventually happens, you keep knocking on the ceiling. Eventually you will suddenly break through because you're when you're knocking on the ceiling, in order to stretch up and get that high, you're using all of these muscles and pushing yourself beyond what you're capable of doing in order that it becomes the norm. So if you run three miles a day, in the end, it becomes the norm. So if you're trying to lose weight or whatever, the first week you run three miles a day, massive. But after about week three, you suddenly realize your body's used to running three miles every day. So you've got to run four now to in order to for your body to then think, oh, hang on a minute, I better burn off a few more calories because it holds on to everything for three miles. So when you're singing, you're trying to knock on the loft hatch. You're trying to get into that next level and once you get into the next level it's a little bit like Narnia you suddenly sort of find wow I can sing a few of these songs have a look round and then you have to sort of knock a little bit more just gradually build yourself up through that floor and until you get to the loft hatch again maybe a couple of notes up maybe a tone a tone and a half and then you're pushing again um, also it works the other way but it's really how you use the voice as well but the more you use something, the stronger it will get, the more your body will adapt. I mean, the body is an amazing thing. I've been to some loud gigs and I've played some loud shows and my ears have never distorted. And yet speakers and CD players, and they distort. My ears have never distorted. They've always been able to deal with the crystal clear sound that's coming in. And um, your body is an unbelievably finely tuned computer. And if you sing every day and work on it every day, your body will, your breathing will get better. It's quite a good cardio exercise to sing. It's not as good as running. It's not as good as walking. So don't sit there and say, if I sing two hours a day, I'm going to lose weight. You don't always. Um, but it is very good for just breathing and strengthening. And, um, and the more you do that, the more you push yourself just beyond. Like weight training, when you're trying to build up muscle, you push yourself slightly beyond what you're capable of. And then the next day, you know how that feels. And then you suddenly look at it maybe a, a month down the line and you think, wow, a month ago, I was only lifting this and now I'm able to lift this. And also singing is like that. I've worked with people who I would take them down a key in order to work on a few things and give them the confidence and then gradually build them back up again, which in turn was warming their voice up and gradually stepping back up to the point where they were able to belt it through maybe a semitone higher than they were singing it, or maybe a tone higher than they were singing it to start with. Um, because it's really, between the ears is a big part of it, but also the more you use the voice, the more you, you, you train. That's why people train your voice. You are training. It's like a physical thing that you do. And uh, I'm, I'm sort of vocally, um, I wouldn't say I'm out of shape, but the, the problem I have is, is that uh, although my voice is still there, my breathing isn't, there because I've been sat on the sofa eating biscuits so I've got to get the breathing back and sing more in order to to get the best out of my voice breathing wise because no good trying to sing if I'm out of breath 
but you can extend your vocal range. I don't know how much. Everybody is different. Um, and what a lot of singers do is to kind of stay in um, a comfort zone and sing songs. And, and, and I come across it quite a lot where people will sing songs an octave lower than the song. And they hear it as right. And of course, I hear it as being an octave lower. And I say to him, you know, you need to be up there or couldn't get that high. But actually, it's not that high once you have done it, once you know how it feels to do it. Um, and, and that's what it is. You, you, you just work the voice and you keep pushing it slightly beyond what it's capable of. But you have to be careful you don't blow your voice out. It's only, you know, always, always warm up properly. There are plenty of exercises online and you can always email me and I'll send you a, a warm up or I'll go through a warm up online with you or something like that. For a certain amount of money. And um, yeah, things like that. So we warm yourself up properly. But when you've warmed yourself up, push your voice and just try and go for a note. Maybe if you're just singing through scales or sometimes in this day and age with the technology, if there's a favourite song that you sing that you think is on the brink for you or a bit tough, go for that. When you can get it, change the key of it. Take it up half a, half a step, a uh, semitone, and then try and sing it and see if you can push your, your voice. And the more you do that the more that uh, everything else becomes the norm. So if I, if, I was, if I ran two miles for a week and then the following week ran three miles, the first two miles wouldn't bother me because I knew how that felt. And then, you know, by week three, when I'm running four miles, I know how the first three feel. So it's only when you test yourself that you know um, that you're improving and then everything that you've done before that becomes the norm, i.e. becomes easier, becomes the comfort zone, and if I'm a good runner and I can run six miles, I know that the first three or four are not going to bother me. But I know that five and six probably will. And then when I'm up to ten, five and six won't bother me. So it's that. It's still six miles. It's just how it's perceived and it's just the fact that I've done it. So you can extend your vocal range, but you've got to be brave enough to push yourself beyond what you're capable of. Thank you very much for your question. Do you have a song in your head? Turn your ideas into full songs. With a team of professional musicians, engineers and producers, we can turn even the simplest demo into full studio quality recordings. Go to www.innovationstudios.com. Nicola says, um, are there any songs that shouldn't be played in certain situations? Uh, football songs in any situation, Nikki. Never, Nicola, never sing um, a football song anywhere if you can avoid it because it immediately divides the room. Also, um, it sounds obvious, but don't necessarily sing any any songs by um, controversial artists, shall we say, people who have been arrested for um, sex crimes or people who are, you know, just you know what I mean. So try not to sing anything by them. Um, and obviously certain situations, it's not it's not funny ha-ha, but it's, there are certain times when obviously, you know, if somebody asks you to play at somebody's wake, obviously it's common sense that you don't play, you know, certain songs. Um, and you probably could work out what they are. But I think there's a danger that you can overthink things. Um, and again, it's not a funny story. And again, I don't I don't say it to get a funny reaction. But I just remember uh, a few years ago, I played a, a, a charity show um, for an organisation. And I'd, I'd 
ignorantly, I can't remember the name of the organisation, but it was um, like a, a, a group session for um, people with blindness and um, or people with, with uh, very, very limited sight, things like that. And um, just somebody said to me, well, you know, what are you doing? I was talking to a lo really lovely gentleman about guitars and he was saying that, he said, and he used the expression, when I could see, I used to have this guitar and I used to play this. And so he'd obviously had something, uh, some illness that had sent him blind. And um, he said to me, I love the Beatles. I really love the Beatles. Um, you know, do you play anything by the Beatles? And I said, yeah. He said, do you play the obvious ones? So I said, no, I don't play the obvious ones. I said, I'll try and, I'll try and play one for you that's a bit less obvious. And um, I started with Nowhere Man. And um, I'm singing it, and, and my brain started forwarding and going f way, way, way ahead because I suddenly remembered, and I got this awful um, feeling because the, li the, the, the first line of the second um, verse is, he's as blind as he can see, just sees what he wants to see. And I had this awful, just, and it, although it was probably only about 20 seconds, this awful conflict. And I thought to myself, if I, if I don't sing that, then first of all, I'm not singing the song. But secondly, maybe I'm acknowledging that I, th that I think something's bad. And if I do sing that, is he going to think that I'm taking the mick? So in the end, I just sung it and nothing happened. Everybody just sung along and everybody just carried on. And I think you can sometimes, as a performer, suddenly get this little voice in your head that says, don't sing that. And I've, I've played shows over the years where I've, I've encouraged people to clap their hands and stamp their feet. And, you know, in the, uh, the, one of the places that Walter Wall played years ago, there was a gentleman in a, in a wheelchair at the front. And I'm saying, stamp, you know, clap your hands and stamp your feet. And, and I felt awful. Because uh, I suddenly thought, oh, my God, you know, I, I, I felt like... But nothing happened. He was one of the nicest people I've ever met. And we were chatting about the stuff and he said he loved the show. And I I think you can just suddenly think in that moment, my God, this this could go either way. Um, and so, you know, in that, in that particular case, I wasn't trying to be funny and I wasn't trying to um, embarrass anybody or make anybody feel bad I just chose a song that I suddenly started singing and thought I made far more of it than it actually was I mean all right if you're at, if you're at somebody's cremation and you're singing fire by the crazy world of Arthur Brown and unless they've specifically asked you to play that you don't do it all right if you're playing D-I-V-O-R-C-E at a wedding then first of all you're an idiot but secondly, you know, you don't do it. So a lot of the time it's common sense, but um, you can make so much more of a mountain than the molehill that actually you do, uh, you are approaching. Just do what you do. And, you know, I think there are certain songs, I mean, for years and years we weren't, there, there were signs up that said, in, in clubs, do not play Alice. And it wasn't that we were saying anything, it was just everybody was shouting it out. Now, everybody that doesn't know that song, and if you're too young to know it, you're not missing anything, but I'm just telling you. People would say, you know, who's Alice, or in, in a slightly different way. And um, But but as a, as a crowd pleaser and as a, an audience reaction, it, it always got a great reaction. It's just, in the end, it became unbelievable. I mean, you'd have people coming in and say, look, there's a photo of a queen out there, and as far as we're concerned, she's in the audience, all right? So we don't want any filth. 
So nobody's... And there will be signs up that says any band playing Alice will be thrown out and never invited back. And you're thinking, all right, well, you know, fair enough. I, I get that. Um, and I understand why people don't want don't want to hear that. And, and I get it. So if you play that, you know, in, in certain places, I mean, I wouldn't do that in a... If I went to play a, a care home or a day centre, I wouldn't play that. And to be fair... Most of that generation wouldn't necessarily realise that anyway and would probably listen to it as a song. But I don't want to take that chance just in case Maud at the back stands up and points at me and says, who the f- is Alice? Because, you know, she might might not have taken her vitamin pills that day. She might be, uh, you know, losing it a bit. And be, by the time I've restrained her and sat her back down again, the damage has been done. So there are certain songs that you can't play and you shouldn't play in certain situations. But most of them are pretty much self-explanatory. And uh, most of the time, it, there's there's nothing to really worry about. Uh, Roger says, is it important to know the Italian phrases? Hello, Roger. Um, if you're studying music, and if you're studying music theory, um, then yes, um, it is. If you're just in a band on a Saturday night, um, and you're having some fun with it, then No. But I think it's always handy to know a few. I liken it to kind of going and having your car fixed and, and you chat to the mechanic and you use big words like, you know, put a carburetor and obviously I had a look at the at the, the fuel injectors and stuff like that. You, you know a few words here and there. So if you're in a in a band situation or you're with a group of people, if you say, you know, just, just a little bit quieter, a bit more pianissimo um, or softer, then, you know or slightly faster, a bit more allegro. It's not the worst thing in the world if you say that. I just, just think the people that I sort of have been in bands with, if I said a bit more allegro, I think they just look at me and go, I can see their faces now. A bit more allegro. Yeah, you know, faster. So if you do use it, most of the time you end up explaining what it means anyway. But there are lots of those. Fortissimo, Forte, uh, Pianissimo, Glissando, um, so many of them. And I studied them as part of the Royal Schools of Music. Um although, you know, that was years ago. Most of the time, I can hardly remember a lot of that. Um, but realistically, I think um, you just need to be able to communicate with other musicians. And it's, it's handy to know a few things, but I don't think you need to know every single Italian phrase and what it needs in order to, you know, play shows in your little band on a Saturday night. I don't think I don't think it's, it's overly important. But... Um, Always worth learning as much as you can about music. And if it's something you're interested in, um, then go and learn it. Thanks for your question. Tom says, what is a guide vocal? Hello, Tom in Brain Braintree. What is a guide vocal? A guide vocal, Tom, is uh, usually used in a studio. And it's when you go in and, and you set up and everything. And when you're trying to get the take. Because what, what usually happens is that um, usually when you when you go into a, uh, a stereo environment, you're trying to get a track down to which you can then add the vocals or overdub guitars. You just need to get a decent drum track down. And, uh, you know, and anything on there that's good enough to keep then sometimes gets kept. But you're looking really to get um, a really good drum track. And sometimes... Um, your drummers work better with the musicians around them. So you they're in their own room with their headphones on and you play. But a guide vocal is basically you sing a little bit of it and then you might say, you know, chorus coming up, um, okay, into the bridge. So you sort of talk the band through the song. Um, and that's the same as when you're working. Um, I was working with Arthur 
making the Men of Earth album. And, and I said to him, the first thing we're going to do after we get the drums down is to have one one acoustic guitar and a guide vocal, which everything after that can then follow the guide vocal um, in terms of the verses, because it's very difficult to play a song all the way through without somebody singing it. Um, it, it really is. It, it would be perceived as being easy, but I, I promise you, if you try it yourself, to be in a band and to play a song all the way through without somebody singing it is very difficult. So if you've got this voice in your headphones that you'd recorded earlier that just says, okay, chorus sings a little bit of it, maybe sings a verse and then says, okay, go to the chorus, right, uh, break it down, okay, four bars and then it ends. It kind of talks you through when you're working on it afterwards. Guide vocals for me are far more important than people think they are, particularly if, um, you know, if, if, if you're making an album and you stick a guide vocal on, then the guide vocal sort of sits there and, and, and guides everybody through it and then... Um, by the time you come to do your vocal at the end, you've heard the guide vocal go round probably a hundred times. So when it comes to singing it, you just go in and usually you you just sing it because you've been singing along with it. You've heard the guide vocal, which again, guide vocals are never very rarely used on the final uh, mix. But, so, but a guide vocal doesn't mean that you don't sing it from the right place and it doesn't sound okay. It's just now and again, it's got like a uh, instruction you know, break it down, four bars, back in again. Um, and it just helps everybody to stay in in uh, time, stay in the moment, to know where they are in the song. Um, and uh, guide vocals are very important. And I would recommend to everybody that records out there that a good way of doing stuff is um, to get your drums and then stick an acoustic guitar and a guide vocal on before you build all around it. Because they are the last couple of things that you take off but the song is kind of there and the structure is there and as you're listening to it you're getting to know the song because you've got the voice there and the acoustic guitar so guide vocals are very important tom um and they help everybody know where they are in the song when you're trying to record something um without uh, any overspill onto the microphones uh, usually the guide vocal is in your headphones and um Therefore, you know, if you've got your guitars mic'd up, you can't have someone next to you saying chorus first because it's going to come out on the recording. So a guide vocal is something that you just DI, record, and then you can have that in your headphones and enjoy the song um, as you're working stuff out. But that's what a guide vocal is. It's not meant to be something that's there. It's really just um, an instruction that keeps everybody in time. Thanks for your question, Tom. Cheers. All the best. Innovation Studios has all the tools you would need to bring your music to life. Get in touch to book a free consultation. This is our opportunity to chat about your music, listen to demos, and if you're unsure, find which pricing would fit you best. There are no hidden costs. Once a booking is made and price agreed, there are no further hidden charges. Our team at Innovation Studios are professional musicians, and we know that sometimes a recording may run into an extra hour or an extra day your original price will stand. Guidance that will help you make a great sounding album at an affordable price. www.innovationstudios.com Ryan from Basildon. Hello, Marcus. I went to school with you. Do you remember musical appreciation sessions? <laughs> oh my God, Ryan, yes. Musical appreciation. Mrs. Sordi on the piano. Um... Yeah, 
musical appreciation was um, something a lot of schools did actually, and and um, maybe it, it would have been. And also, I think what I seem to remember as well, um, which was a good thing actually, was that every assembly on a Tuesday morning, the headmaster would play a, a classical piece, and then would talk about it. So he might tell you about the firework music, or he might tell you about uh, a piece by Mozart, and he would tell you about a composer. And, um, you know, when, you, when you're seven years old and scratching yourself and don't really care, but looking back on it, actually, it was quite a good um, thing to do. And musical appreciation was like that, um, really. That Sometimes they would play a piece of music and then you would talk about it afterwards. Um, but... Obviously, if you had, if you'd have a musical bone in your body, then you know I don't really don't really know what the point of it was. But yes, I do remember musical appreciation, and I do remember that um, even though music has gone on to be my life, I probably never really appreciated it at the time when it's banged out on a on a piano. Um, but there was usually stuff like um, I'm trying to think. Those were the days, and uh, I think Mari's Wedding was one of the tunes that often was played. But they would try and get you to appreciate whatever they were playing, and she would, uh, you know, Mrs. Sordi would play something and say, "Everybody's got to sit and appreciate it." And I don't really know how you do that. What the correct face is for appreciating something, but yeah, musical appreciation. And they even actually had, believe it or not. At the school that I went to, St Anne Line, which is uh, in, in Basildon, they had a musical appreciation society where, um, and that was within the pupils that you would become, I mean, I never, but you, you, you were able, you would meet in a group after school. And I think they still do, I think they, they still do have musical appreciation societies. Um, and I think it's a good thing. I don't think it's a good thing when you're seven or eight or nine, um, because I think you're more interested in um, what you're going to have for lunch or, you know, who's who's number one in the charts. But musical appreciation, any excuse for people to get together, listen to something that they haven't heard before or to introduce something that others haven't heard or to talk about a musician or a style of music that um, might be a bit rare or um, and, and somebody else might discover because of that appreciation society and then it might become their their favorite band um i i I teach a young lady on fridays um helen and uh, we were talking this morning and we were working together on on a guitar and we were working on uh, maxwell's silver hammer by the beatles which is just one that i like to play because it's a nice busy acoustic piece and i think it always sounds good and um what happened with that was um helen went away and said okay well i I looked it up on youtube and, and she stumbled across um the, a, a, a duo called the Mona Lisa twins um, or the Mona Lisa sisters or something like that. Showing my ignorance. But, um, and they did a great version of it and they did it in like an old school sort of 30s or 40s way and a really, really great version. So um, because of that, Helen has gone and bought uh, two or three of their CDs and and that that's a, a group that I've never heard of. But because I introduced Helen to a, a particular song, and then Helen has now introduced me to this new um, artist that I'd never heard of. That's a good thing. So in turn, even though if Helen didn't like Maxwell Silverhammer, she appreciated it and then went and looked for other versions of it, which I now appreciate and um, and I like. So if, it's, if, if there's anyone out there that um, hasn't heard the song, listen to it by the Beatles, but have a listen to it by the, Mo- I think it's the Mona Lisa Twins. 
um, but it might be the Mona Lisa sisters. So whatever it is, look it up on 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 YouTube, and uh, email me and let me know what you think. Okay, thanks for your question though, and uh, I hope that um, I hope that you carry on appreciating music, uh, Ryan. This one is from Daz. Daz says, Hi, Marcus. I read somewhere that the Beatles only used four tracks when they were recording. With technology these days and the way it is, is it possible to have too many tracks? Um, hello, Daz. Yeah, of course it is. I think um, I, I like everybody else that, that, you know, that cares about music and that studies music. I think you can have too much of a good thing. So... What I used to do when, when I first started recording, I'm showing my age now, but when I first started recording, I had what they called a Tascam Porter Studio 02, which was on a cassette, and you could only have four tracks. Now, what the Beatles did famously was to bounce stuff down, and, you know, without getting too technically, they, technical, they, they record three tracks, and then, and then mix those three tracks to the fourth track, and keep it, which then left tracks one, two, and three to record over. And that's what you kind of did with the Porter Studio. But what it taught me very early on is to keep things simple. And most of the albums that I've made have usually had two guitars, bass and drums, maybe with an acoustic guitar and maybe an overdubbed solo and possibly a piano. Um, because if you have too many options, you can overcrowd something. You can put too much on it. And um, so I think, I think we can all... Without, without pointing the finger at anybody, when, t 21 years ago, I remember the euphoria and the excitement that Oasis were bringing a new album out. And this was their fourth album. They, they, they'd had, definitely maybe, they'd had What's the Story, they'd had Be Here Now. And this was a fourth album, which was called Standing on the Shoulders of Giants. And it sort of a, a week before the album came out, Noel and... Uh, Liam, but mostly Noel, were appearing on radio stations and were playing acoustic versions of the new songs. So stuff like Sunday Morning Call, and I mean, they were just so awesome. And I thought, I can't wait until this album comes out. And when the album came out, for my ears, it just sounded so crowded and overproduced. Like too many strings, too many overdubs. Too, but it doesn't mean it's not a great album. It's just I remember being surprised by how much was on it. Because when you'd heard the songs as simply as one acoustic and one vocal, to suddenly hear them with an orchestra and crowds and of, of different instruments and pianos and stuff like that, I felt a little bit that that would have been a better album on six tracks. You know, or, or it would have just knocked your, knocked your socks off. Um, but that isn't to knock them. I, I, I just mean that's an example of how sometimes you can have too many tracks. And I've been in studios where... Um, they, they've said, you know, probably many years ago, but it was eight track. And they've said, you know, you've only used six. You've still got two tracks left. What do you want to put on them? And you say, I don't need anything on them. It sounds fine as it is. Why, why do I need to use all eight tracks? I, I have everything I need. So the Porter Studio taught me that you could use four tracks and, uh, you know, keep, keep things simple. And then I moved on to a Fostex DMT, which was an eight track. And I remember having an eight track. And even then, I think very rarely I used all eight. I think sometimes you would have maybe the drums on one, possibly one and two if you wanted like a stereo, bass on three, acoustic guitar on four, lead guitar on five, um, maybe rhythm guitar on six, and then vocals on seven and eight. And that, 
you know, I, I probably used a lot of the times probably about six or seven tracks because the bass would be one track. The drums would usually be one. Um, couple of guitars, that's four. Lead guitar is five. It leaves me three tracks for vocals. So, you know, you always had enough space and I think you can overkill something if you have too much of it. Um, it's a bit like um, running a shop or something and you suddenly say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm running this shop and I've got this spare shelf. What shall I put on it? Well, you don't need to put anything on it. Just, just have a, you know, it's okay to just either spread out everything that you've got or just have an empty shelf. It's not the end of the world. Um, you don't have to fill in something because it's available to you and you can overkill a song. And, it, and the more you put on there, the more instruments you put on there, the less the vocal has the space to breathe. And of course, like everybody else, when I first started mixing, I would be everything in the middle and everything louder than everything else. And it was only really after a f probably a few years that I realized if I spread the guitars right out and put them left and right and put the bass maybe in the middle or slightly left, the vocal would breathe on its own. And, and sometimes you'd end up turning it down. But when you're 18 and you're just trying to make music, everything's in the middle and it's too loud. And then you, you suddenly think that the more you put on it, the, the bigger it will sound. But actually... That's not the case. The, uh, an album sounds big because the drums need to sometimes kick a bit more and um, because of what the guitars do in their own space. And a guitar in one speaker can be turned up twice as loud as, as it can be when it's across both speakers, which then gives you a real kick because you, you then put another guitar on the other side, which is twice as loud as it would otherwise be and doesn't crowd the vocal or makes loads of room. So... Um, you can overcrowd stuff by putting too much on it. And I think most of the albums that I've made, usually I make an album two or three times. Make it the first time, listen to it, go back and make it a second time, listen to it, go back and make it a third time, and that's it. But I have had albums that I've had 22 tracks maybe, and I thought, well, I've got the, the strings, there's two. And then you look back at it and you think, well, okay, there's two guitars doing the same there. So let's change, let's take one of the guitars off and, and really get a better sound with the other one and make it just bigger because the two guitars are crowding. Um, ma making a few songs with um, a mate of mine, John, John Wagstaff. And I found that a couple of the songs we put on there, one of the Christmas songs that we did, which obviously probably won't be out now until th this Christmas. Um, I had two guitars on it and the more I listened to it the, the, the bigger it sounded so I, I took one of the guitars off and spread the sound of that one guitar back in the middle again um, and gave it a bit more bite and it I just think it knocks your block off it's just it's just got more to it um, so it's trial and error but you can have too many tracks Daz and you can drown everything because you think that the more tracks are on something the more instruments that are on something the bigger it will sound but it's not how many instruments are on there. It's what they do. So if you've got three or four guitars doing the same thing, you only need one guitar that does that. Now, that's not to say, uh, if you go around and listen to, there's a, a track on the Oasis album, Be Here Now, and the song is called My Big Mouth. I think there are something like 32 electric guitar overdubs on that. Uh, it really sounds huge. But that, you know, it kind of works. At least you listen to it and you think, yeah, you know, it's, it sounds sounds great. Um, and they're all doing the same thing. And, they, and between them all doing the same thing, they, they have this big picture. But um, invariably, when you listen to the Oasis albums, you've normally got a couple of guitars that just paint a nice picture rather than have four or five that um, overkill everything. 
So not every album that you release needs strings. Not every album you release has piano on it. Sometimes two guitars, bass and drums. And you can go to work. And that's it. All right. But thanks for your question, Daz. Always a pleasure, mate. Laurie in Gallywood. Hello, Marcus. I just wondered on the tribute band circuit. Um, do tribute bands need to play together much? As it seems that if each member learns their part, it should just knit together. That's a good question, actually, uh, Laurie, because you would think that that would be the case. When when we started doing the Oasis tribute, what, what we did was we chose, I think it was three shows. Um, and we took GMX 97, we took Wembley 2000, and I think we took Manchester 2005 at, at the um, Man City Stadium. What we did was to learn the parts from those shows. But it wasn't a case of just, I mean, obviously it helped because it meant that when we played together, if everybody played what they were supposed to play, then it would work. But you still have to play together to to get used to the sound of stuff. I mean, the, the, the one of the good things about the um, tribute band situation and the tribute band circuit is that usually the songs are played a certain way. So if on one particular night a Beatles tribute doesn't have a George Harrison, chances are that George Harrison from another Beatles tribute will be able to walk in and do a job. But it's never going to sound like it does when you've got those blokes who know each other, who live who live in each other's pockets and, and uh, you know, have that chemistry. But it will get the job done. So you do need to still rehearse and you do, do still need to analyse things because sometimes, and I, and I know this, this might make people sit up and go, what? But sometimes um, you, you do have to, in a funny sort of way, um, play the song slightly differently in order to get the exact sound that you want. And I know that sounds strange because you would think that that's it. But um, drummers and, and bass guitar players and guitar players and singers, we all have different, we all made differently. So we can't ever, ever pretend to be exactly the same way as them. Not in our case, but I, I happen to know there's one or two Oasis tributes out there where they do Wonderwall with the capo on the third rather than the second. Now, I know anybody that knows it will go, it's always, but, but when their Liam starts singing, it's a nice key for him and he just has the sound. And nobody's in the audience going, well, everything's up a key. They're, they're getting the end result. They're getting what they want to hear. In our case, most you know, I think all of what we do is in the original key and in the right key. But that doesn't make us right. doesn't make them wrong. It's just you're trying to get that result. And sometimes as a tribute, you have to play slightly differently in order to get the spirit of the song. And that really only a finely tuned ear would say, hang on a minute, there's a double kick drum on that, or there's this, or there's that. You know, there's, we, we don't put big extravagant fills in or change the, the format much. But um, it is a little bit more, Laurie, than just turning up with your, with your notes all freshly prepared and um, playing the song through and then going, that's performable. Although that does speed up the process of being gig ready, um, which brings me to another question. Um, that came in that, uh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't get your name, but it was, is it possible to over-rehearse? Um, is it possible to over-rehearse? Uh, yeah, because you could you could blow your voice out if you're over-rehearsing, if you're singing too much. Um, and also, I think there's a, there's a saying in certain sports, but um, darts being one of them, that you, um, you can leave all your best form on the practice table. Or you can leave all your best form on the in the practice room because you've played and played and played and played until you were, you know, until you, you you'd gone past your best. So if you over rehearse and if it gets to the point where it doesn't sound like uh, it sounded an hour ago, then probably time to probably time to step away. But yeah, you can over rehearse. 
Um, right, having a look at the clock, and that will do me for this week. I've got a, a killer question, a couple of great questions which I'll, I'll do next week. Um, thanks again for listening in. Thanks for your subscriptions. Thanks for your support. Thanks for um, your questions. Don't forget www.innovationstudios.com. The Instagram is Innovation Studios. Twitter is Innovation Studios. And there's an Innovation Studios page on Facebook too. Um, and uh, you can download this podcast, which I'll pr- you probably already worked out, from um, Apple Music, from Podcast Player, from Spotify, and from most digital streaming media. So anyway, look. That'll do me. Go and enjoy uh, a lovely weekend, okay? Um, And I will see you all next week. And until I do, you take very, very good care. Send in lots of love. And uh, I'm out of here, all right? Yours in music, signing off. Bye-bye for now. Bye.